All right. Morning, family. How are we? Good, good, good. Hey, how have y'all been enjoying the relationship series so far? Good? Yeah? Uh, man, I have uh, been blessed by it, honestly, overall, and just encouraged, and uh, we continue that today, and we're uh, going to be talking about sex today, and the relationship with sex, and what that means, what that looks like, and so, quick note before diving in, uh, if you have children in here, obviously, you could take them to children's ministry, uh, because we're going to be talking about a really sensitive topic today. Uh, at the same time, uh, if your kids don't hear this from the church, they're going to hear it from the world. And I genuinely believe that the scriptures highlight a better way than what the world kind of presents to us. And so uh, you may actually want to leave them in. Uh, and if they're old enough to really wrestle with what's going on, uh, man, they may be blessed by that as well. If they are in later grade school, they already know what we're going to be talking about today. And so to get a good perception of it would be uh, helpful. And let's be real, like, man, I may be doing the heavy lifting for you, all right? Like, you don't got to be all awkward later talking about the birds and the bees, you know what I mean? Which I've never understood that metaphor, so if somebody can holler at your boy after the gathering, enlighten me, all right? Uh, hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab them. We're going to be jumping all over the place today, uh, but we're going to start off in 2 Samuel. If you don't have a Bible, if you would raise your hand, uh, man, our ushers will be coming forward and would love to give you one. If you don't own one, I would encourage you to raise your hand and take and keep that. It's our gift to you. Uh, you can also plug this stuff into your browser and you can follow along. That way, the link is in the bulletin uh, as well. Um, and we say this every week because we mean it. We want your eyes on the Word. We really do believe that God's scriptures give life into topics, even topics like today, that are kind of difficult to wrestle with and to walk through. And uh, we'll be jumping all around today, so if you can't keep up physically, uh, it's okay. I'll we'll be on the screen. Just want you to know that kind of up front, all right? And so as we continue to look at relationships done God's way, which is a better way, uh, sex is the relationship that I think, or the, the thing that happens in a relationship that we have the most denial about uh, from what the scriptures are kind of saying to us. I think in the other uh, ones, as we kind of highlight it, we see a lot of the beauty of it, and we want to submit to the wisdom of the scripture. But in this one, uh, it kind of grates against a lot of what our society, even what we tell ourselves about sex. And so what I I hope to do today is to paint a very, very broad picture of sex and what the scripture's view of sex is and why it's important for us to see it in light of the gospel and in light of what God says because it will create a flourishing and a joy in our souls that will be palpable, that will uh, literally enlighten us and, and charge us up to run this race for God and protect us at the same time from all of the harm that can come with something as great of a gift as this, which for some of us, we have to realize that it was indeed God who created sex. You know what I mean? Like he made male and female, okay, and then he put them in the garden, naked, let me remind you of that, all right? So them be fruitful and multiply. And it wasn't like God like left to like go make a sandwich or something and then came back and they had male and female parts, right? It was like, Satan, what are you doing, right? Like, that's not what's happening there, okay? And so God created it. It's a gift from God. However, like every gift from God, it can be deeply distorted. It can be kind of taken and spun in a really poor way. The greater the gift, actually, the greater the pain and the hurt that often comes when that gift is misused. 
And so that's why this is so important. There's so much pain and hurt around this because of how great of a gift it is. And so as we think through it, I think that there are certain ways we can think about and view sex, and two of them, I would say, are actually really, really harmful uh, for our souls. They are not protective. They are not uh, creating flourishing. They would create pain and harm. And one of them, I think, is a really beautiful way that will create life in us. And that's the three ways we're going to look at it, the three ways that Scripture even highlights it today, there are three ways you can view sex. You can view it as God, you can view it as gross, or you can view it as a gift. And those are the three things that we're going to look at today, kind of overarchingly. We're going to tackle each of them in that order. You can view it as God. Sex is the ultimate thing that will bring me ultimate satisfaction. And then you can kind of pursue it as such. You can see it as gross. Sex is just a necessary evil that I don't really want to talk about. The fact that Tori has already said the word sex 20 times in the sermon <laughs> makes me uncomfortable, right? So you can see it as gross, something not good. Or you can see it as a gift from God that when used correctly, it will produce joy. However, it's not just a gift in and of itself, but rather it's a gift that points to something even greater, Every single one of God's gifts are not meant for us just to enjoy that gift, but rather they are pointing us to a greater reality. And so if we have the right view, if we see sex as a gift, which it actually is, then it can create worship in us in a very beautiful and profound way and catapults us toward intimacy with God. What Satan wants to do is take God's precious gifts and then smear them so that we become hurt by them and we become confused by them. And often we get mad at God for them because Satan's trying to distort our view on it. And I would just submit to us that most of us have a distorted view with sex. We do not see it as a gift. We see it as one or the other, or maybe even kind of a convoluted combination of all three of those things. And so I want to tackle them and think about them. And the first one we want to look at is sex as God, which is what the majority of our culture tends to think right now. It's why every movie that you watch, it pinnacles toward the sex scene. All the camera zooms in, right? The music intensifies. There's all this focus and direction on the sex scene. It's like you could be watching a superhero movie that has very little to do with love, and all of a sudden they're having sex, and that's like the main point of this, right? And so this is uh, what what the culture is kind of catapulting. They're throwing at us in a lot of different ways. In fact, some really sobering statistics to show you how infatuated we are with sex as a culture. Uh, Porn sites, they get more visitors each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. Uh, 30% of the internet search industry is actually pornography. And just so we're not uh, deceived there, uh, 94% of men have at some point been addicted to pornography and 68% of women have. And so it's not like just a one-sided thing. There's a lot that goes on there. Porn is a $13 billion industry in America. Unfortunately, $3 billion is actually child pornography. Uh, There are three times more physical sex stores than there are McDonald's in America. Like, it's nearly agreed upon today as a culture, and as you think about the philosophy of the culture, that sex is necessary before marriage in order for you to fully understand compatibility and connectedness that you have to have sex before you get married. It's kind of like the additive that you have to test drive a car before you buy it is what you hear often, as if your potential spouse is an object to be bought rather than a soul to be cherished. 
And so this is our culture and what we're thinking about so often. This infatuation is just present. If you just look around, it's clear. Like I was trying to watch the NBA last night and see the Warriors go up 3-0. Let's go, Steph Curry with a shot. <laughs> but I'm watching the NBA, right? And in comes a commercial about tires, like, like things that you, you know, put on your car. And there's this like provocative woman dancing. It's like raining. And I'm like, what does this have to do with a tire, yo? Right? But they know, like, our culture is infatuated with sex. They try to sell it. They push it. And it's not a new thing. It's actually flooded throughout the scriptures as well. And so that's where I want to start today is one example of it that we see is in 2 Samuel chapter 13. And as you're turning there, uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 1, but just a little bit of context for us so we know where we're going. All right? Uh, In that culture, it was not awkward or strange to uh, end up being married to, like, a really close relative, like a cousin or a half-brother, half-sister. So I know that sounds absurd to us because it sounds so uh, distant, but it wasn't strange in that culture. And so what you're seeing here is you're seeing this uh, desired relationship beginning to form between half-brother, half-sister, and that wouldn't have been strange in that context, okay? And so uh, 2 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. And so the half-sister thing would have been normal in that culture, but the not normal part is that Amnon is becoming sick, feeling like he desperately needs this girl. And unfortunately, that's actually a theme throughout the scriptures as well. We see it with Jacob and Rachel, Abraham's grandson. We see it with the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. We see it with David and Bathsheba, Amnon and Tamar's dad. And David's infatuation, his soul almost starting to become sick because of his desire. We see it in Solomon, one of David's other sons, that he had a thousand different wives or concubines. We see it with Gomer. We see it with Samuel. Samson, who was really a whoremonger in a lot of ways. And all throughout the scripture, we see this. And so what sex, it seems to be the thing that if you have it, then you become whole. You become fully satisfied. You become who you were created to be. And so it feels sickening when you don't have it. It feels like you're totally missing out on something. Like like there's a shortcoming in your soul almost. That's often the temptation of sex. And that is a view that sex is God. That it's an all-satisfying thing. And if our relationship with sex is that it is God, then it will make us sick if we do not have it. And I just want you to know that sex is a miserable little G God. It's a terrible God because it will always leave you broken. It will always leave you empty. It will always leave you disappointed. It will never fill your soul the way that you think it will. But sex lies to us and says that it is God. And our culture lies to us and says that same thing. And so for Amnon here, the temptation is beginning with this premeditative thought. Like, I need to have her. She's beautiful. I I want her. If I could just have sex with her, then I would be fulfilled. And he's letting this marinate in his head. And as it marinates in his head, it begins to lead him into sin. And so the lust that he's experiencing, he's mistaking it now for covenantal love. And he thinks that he loves her. He thinks that there's something real there. He's mistaking 
losing it because of lust. And our culture, friends, it lets sex marinate in our head over and over and over again by catapulting it at you over and over and over again. And as it marinates, it can easily begin to deceive us where we feel like we're missing something if we don't have it. And this is what's happening to Amnon. He feels like he's missing something. Every God that we chase, when we receive it, it only leaves us wanting more, except for the real God. It's very similar to uh, like a drug that you need to continually increase the dosage to continue to feel the high of it. That's why what started with once a week in pornography goes to three times a day or it goes to different types and, and harder to control ones because it is not satisfying. And so we have to call it out for what it is. Sex is not a good God. It is an enslaving God. It is a God that urges and commands and does not release control of you. It enslaves you. And we do not serve a God who wants our bondage or slavery, but rather our freedom. And sex is an enslaving God. In fact, C.S. Lewis, who was an author and a philosopher, uh, when he was thinking about the sex epidemic, he gave an analogy that I thought was really helpful. He says it like this. He says, suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon, would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? He goes on to say, there's more sex available than has ever been before, and yet we crave it more and more and more. We can fill up stadiums or fill up the internet sites with pornography, continuing to give us little glimpses of it, and yet we are not satisfied. We want more and more of it, and that, that means we've made sex to be a god. We think if we get just a little bit more, then we will be satisfied, but that's not true. He goes on to say, man, isn't there something wrong with our appetites then? Wasn't it show some twisted thought about what we're thinking here? By the way, C.S. Lewis died in 1963. I would argue there's four times more sex now than there was then. And so if he's seeing this problem then, how much more is it now? Our appetites are not being satisfied with sex. They're being exploited, friends. Your appetite, which is good in instinct and in nature, it's taking something good and making it God, and you are being exploited, you're not being satisfied. You will never be satisfied in this way. It is not a good God. In fact, sex is a powerful gift that uh, is meant to create and to display oneness, which we'll get into in a second. But that's part of the problem, is that when we're not one with one person in this covenant relationship, then it begins to create confusion and, and frustration, and we begin to get all over the place, and God knew that. And so he's trying to create these parameters to create safety for our soul, but we reject the wisdom of God and think, if I can just have a little bit more, then I will have what my soul needs. And you won't. That's why there's so much hurt, y'all. There's so much hurt around this. It's because of the way we view it. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is picking up on this idea. And beginning in verse 15, he says this, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined sexually to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. 
But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body, or the soul is what Paul is really highlighting there. And so you become one, and this ends up uh, affecting you drastically. Now listen to me very, 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 very clearly, y'all. There is redemption in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know, like, like I, could, I could feel the tension in a way as we dive into a topic that we don't fully like talking about and that Satan wants us to plug our ears to. But I want you to know that as we open up this man, Jesus Christ can come in and heal. And so no matter what's happened in the past and how much drama there is or what even happened last night, listen, there is forgiveness, there is healing, there is restoration in the gospel. In fact, as a staff team, people on the elder board, people in leadership circles, some of your CG shepherds, mean we have a tainted past sexually and yet God has taken our past, washed us clean by Christ and redeemed us in the gospel. And this is the hope for all of us, but we have to understand what's happening in order to receive that forgiveness even. In fact, I love the way that God says it in Jeremiah chapter 31. It'll be on the screen. You'll have to turn there. But it says that the Lord appeared to him, this is Israel, from far away. And God says to him, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. It's God's faithfulness that will end up creating this important phrase for Israel. It says, again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. I want you to remember that phrase. It says, again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Listen, Israel was definitely not a virgin, In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 3, God calls Israel a whore five different times. So she was the opposite of that in a lot of ways. And yet, as they began to find forgiveness in Christ, as God's covenantal love came and reached out for them and grabbed them, he made them whole, he made them new, so new that they were virgins again. Like there's forgiveness and restoration in Christ. What seems to be impossible becomes possible in God for you are a new creation if you are in Christ. In fact, you are born again, the scripture says. You are made new, friends. And so without doubt, there is redemption in Christ. If you feel a weightiness for your sin, I mean, you can go to the cross and Jesus can give you forgiveness, friends. But at the same time, we cannot just think that we can consume sex without actually swallowing the consequences of it as well. The more that we think it's God and we chase after it, the more it will leave us hurt in our souls. In fact, statistics just show us this. We don't even need to use scripture, just regular worldly statistics. It says things like this. If an individual has had sex with even just one person outside of their spouse before marriage, they're five times more likely to get a divorce. And every other partner that adds up, it increases that likelihood upwards to eight times more likely to get a divorce. Y'all, the divorce rate in America is already 50%. Do you see the trap that the society is throwing at you, friends? Do you see how they're screaming at you, this is what you need, and then it ruins your life in the end? This is not true. It is not a good God. On that, listen, God does not set up rules to hurt you, but to help you. God is not for your uh, burden or your heavy weight. He is for your joy. And so when he says, hey, handle sex in this way, he's not doing it because he's just not a fun God. He wants you to experience joy. He just knows what that looks like. 
And he knows what that cost, and he knows how to protect your soul in the process. In Amnon's case, he couldn't see God's law as good, though. He saw sex as God. And what happened in that story, if you go back to 2 Samuel, is he ended up tricking Tamar. And as he tricked Tamar into sleeping with him and really uh, used her in a lot of ways, it says this such a very uh, intriguing phrase to me in 2 Samuel 13, verse 15. It says, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Sex, because of how powerful it is, friends, completely confuses your emotions and makes it to be something that it isn't. That's why some of you know that you shouldn't be in the relationship with you're in, but you're having such a hard time exiting it. It's probably because there was a covenant that began to happen and it creates confusing emotions. Or here in Amnon's case, there's all this confusion. He thought he loved her. Really, it was just lust. Then as he experiences that, there's all this confusion and brokenness. Satan wants to take God's great gift, smear God's great name, create confusion in your life, and ruin it, friends. And we have to realize that. Sex is not a good God. It is not what will satisfy our souls. And when it isn't handled correctly, it does nothing but confuses you and creates chaos in your life. The same is true with things like pornography, which is really just sex with yourself. It's meant to, sex, be used as a bonding between two people. But when you remove that, then there's all this confusion, which is why most people that look at pornography long to be freed from it, and yet they find themselves continually dabbling in it because it's confusing, y'all. Sex, when we try to uh, uh, covenant with something that isn't our spouse, man, it just creates confusion, More on that in a moment because I think there's healing and freedom from it. But we cannot view sex as God because it is not a God that, uh, that satisfies in any way. And God wants our joy and he is for your joy. In fact, just as an analogy, because I think oftentimes we think God's law is burdensome and is not. I heard an analogy once that I thought was really, really helpful. The guy said, hey, imagine that you take a fish and you're like, man, I feel really, really bad for that fish. Why? I don't know. That's on you, right? Like, I feel bad for that fish. And you take this fish and you go, man, he's just, he's just bound to the water. He's bound by all these rules. and these, He doesn't know the redwoods in California or the sky or, you know, whatever. And so you take that fish up out of water and you put it in the land. And you say, now you're free. Is the fish free? No, the fish is about to be dead, all right? And so often God has this water, this living water that he has put around us and said, you have the whole ocean in front of you. I have your joy. And yet the culture comes and says, oh my gosh, what entrapment. And they want to take you out and put you on the land and you will die when you're there, friends. I mean, you are free in Christ. It's not burdensome. It's good. He just knows what brings us life. He knows where you need to breathe. It's in him. It's in what he's created, and so we cannot take sex and confuse it. God's law here about it being between a husband and a wife and the covenant of marriage is a good, good law. He knows what he's doing. At the exact same time, y'all, we can't be pendulum swingers. You know what I mean by that? Like we're often that as church folk. 
or John Calvin called it, we're uh, drunken horsemen. We get up on the horse and then fall off on the other side. And then we get up on the horse and we fall off on the other side too. And so we can't view sex as God, and yet we can't swing the pendulum and view sex as gross either as something that should be totally avoided. If you grew up in church camp, you probably have this view, right? Like, it's like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, so much that you feel like it's dirty, like it's sinful almost, which is not true when it's in its right context. Satan loves to take and desecrate what God has made holy and either get you to overindulge in it or to have a totally bad view of it and not take the gift and use it rightly. And so oftentimes, if we're not overindulging, then we kind of view it like this in that way. But the Bible has a very, very, very high view of sex. In fact, if you look at Proverbs chapter 5, this is actually a chapter that's full of sex. And at the end of the chapter, we see uh, the, the, the wise teacher telling a man this. It says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. The word intoxicated means to be led astray. It's actually the same word that's used sometimes to talk about sin, which is crazy. So it's like be intoxicated, be led astray, be taken into another world with your wife. Enjoy her so much that it almost takes you out and puts you into a different world. Like the Bible doesn't view sex as gross at all. In fact, To look at another perspective, this is a man talking to a man, hey, let your wife's breast satisfy you, right? We'll just flip over a couple of books to the Song of Solomon. Two books later, we see a woman speaking about sex, and beginning in Song of Solomon chapter 2, starting in verse 3, she says this, As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So even in these verses, you see that it's not dirty, but it's also not duty. Like it's not something you have to do to be satisfied. saying, listen, don't awaken love before it's time, because man, this is, a, this is a, a really kind of captivating drug almost in a way, right? But when you can awaken it, then man, this is a beautiful thing. You see the depth of it here. Like scripture is kind of clear. There's fun. There's beauty. There's fragrance that comes from this. She's experiencing this pleasure that she's receiving because of it. Sex is not something that scripture is ashamed about because God created it. Therefore, we should not be ashamed about it. But we have to view it rightly, not as gross. And so let me give you, if you're married, just a really easy kind of parameter, right? If you uh, know that maybe you bend on the you think sex is gross side. If you have a hard time talking openly about your sex life or sexual topics with your spouse, if you don't feel the freedom to talk as freely as they do in Song of Solomon, where they're doting on the wife's body or the husband's body, or they're talking about things like oral sex or where they like to have sex, if all of that feels like, I don't know if I can talk to my spouse about that. I feel weird. Maybe you view sex as dirty, as gross, as something that's just like a necessary evil. And within that, this will prevent you from being fully naked and unashamed the way that God intended for you to be. And when you're not fully naked, when you're not fully able to be free, you won't fully enjoy the gift that's there. Oftentimes, we can view sex as gross. And if we carry a little bit of shame, this will not lead to full connection. 
In fact, I love what Dan Allender, he's a counselor uh, and also a biblical interpreter, he says this about this part of the book. He says, The role of the woman throughout the Song of Solomon is truly astounding, especially in light of its ancient origins. It is the woman, not the man, who is the dominant voice throughout the poems that make up the song. She is the one who seeks, pursues, and initiates sex. She boldly exclaims her physical attraction. Most English translations hesitate in the verses. The Hebrew is quite erotic, and most translators cannot bring themselves to bring out the obvious meaning. This, again, is a prelude to their lovemaking. There is no shy, shamed, mechanical movement under the sheets. Rather, the two stand before each other, aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in each other's sexuality. Sex is not gross. The Bible never paints that picture, family. It never paints that picture. And so, unfortunately, sometimes we can view sex as gross because we swing the pendulum onto the other side. However, I also know, family, that sometimes we can view sex as gross because of what somebody else has done to us. And they've taken God's great gift. Remember, the greater the gift, the more pain that can come when it's not used rightly. And they've taken God's great gift and they have uh, used it against us for their own pleasure and created pain in us that makes sex feel gross. And I'm just telling you, as somebody who uh, was mistreated sexually as a young child, me, I want you to know that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is healing for that too, friends. Listen, Jesus' blood spilled out on the cross not only forgives us for the sins that we've committed. That is very, very true. And praise God for that. Because 99.8% of us in this room need the blood of Jesus over our sexual lives because of things that we've done probably. But there's also, I know, just a lot of us where I had to walk through the pain of this too, that, man, we need the blood of Jesus, not just to cleanse us for the sins that we committed, but also to cleanse us for the sins that were committed against us. And I want you to know that in the gospel of Christ, there's that ability, y'all. Listen, Jesus went up on the cross and he was treated shamefully. This man had done no wrong. He was innocent in that sense. And yet shame was hurled upon Jesus over and over and over again. Sin was cast upon him. Why? Because we do not serve a God who is distant. He's not off in a holy castle, y'all. He got down into the dirt with us, experienced the same type of suffering that we experienced, walked down so that he can relate to us, so that there's actual forgiveness and healing and restoration in Christ. Listen, Jesus experienced shame and guilt hurled upon him, though he had done no wrong. And maybe you were young or maybe something else happened and there was not a lot of wrong on you. Listen, your God can relate. He's not off in a castle. He's with you, friends. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be treated shamefully. And I'm not saying that if you come to Christ, that, man, it's all just clear. Man, maybe there needs to be counseling or, or years of walking through it. But I want you to know that Jesus can relate and that the blood of Jesus doesn't just forgive us and cleanse us from the sins that we have done. It restores all things, which means it also cleanses us for things that have been done against us. This is how big our God is. He's not just telling you, don't do this. He's saying, I want to make you pure, a virgin again, totally clean, a new creation. I want to give this to you in Christ. This is true, and I personally have experienced healing in the gospel as somebody who saw sex as gross because of what happened to me. And so I want you to know that that is there in the gospel too. And so maybe somebody else has ruined it. 
and therefore you see it as gross. Maybe you've swung the pendulum and you're like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, it's bad, and so now it's gross. Or maybe you view it as God. All of those ways can lead to destruction and not actually what God has for us. But here's the deal. Even if others have tried to distort it in you or given you bad teaching, the way that they were trying to use it for their own physical pleasure is not the way that God even has sex laid out in the scripture. Therefore, we're talking about two totally different things here. The way that God views sex in the scripture is something totally different than just your physical pleasure. I mean, it's something almost divine, y'all. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, if you want to turn there, it'll also be on the screen. This is before the fall of man. This was at creation. This is when God was creating man and woman. And it says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That means be united, have sex, be in a covenant relationship with his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The thing we keep seeing in the scripture, the one fleshness, that's what is being highlighted. It's taken from this passage. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. And God's original and good creation, we are meant to become one with one to have no shame, to have no guilt with unified with one person. And this unity isn't just a physical unity. It's not just like this pleasure that the world kind of tells us that's what sex is. We see so much more happening here, y'all. It is an emotional oneness. It is a spiritual oneness. It is a physical oneness. It is a psychological oneness. You are meant to be one person even in a way, and that's what sex begins to do. That's how you serve your spouse. It actually is a, a covenant reminder. It's a covenant renewal in a way with your spouse over and over and over again. We've made a covenant it to become one. Now let us physically represent what's happening emotionally and spiritually in our life. That's the way God wants to view sex as. That's why when it's outside of a covenant in marriage, it doesn't bring the true satisfaction that a marriage does. That's why there's so much difference. And even if somebody has used it poorly against you, that's not what was happening. There's something different in this covenant of marriage, y'all. And this is what God's intention was. I mean, it's actually really similar to communion. Do you know why as a church we pinnacle to communion every single week? Because the body, the bread, and the juice, the blood of Jesus, it is a physical reminder of the spiritual reality of what is true for us if we are in Christ Jesus. And so sex is a lot like that in marriage. It is a physical reminder of the spiritual, emotional, and psychological reality if you two are one with each other. That's why we cannot view sex as gross in marriage because it honestly has gospel-like power even. It is a way, a gift of God to bring this oneness. In fact, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. I, I love this passage. We looked at 1 Corinthians 7 a couple of weeks ago. But Paul says this, Do not deprive one another of sex, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Listen, so powerful is sex that the Lord's like, listen, the only reason you shouldn't be doing this all the time is if you're praying to me. (laughs) And even then, get your prayers in and then get back, right? (laughs) 
That's what he's saying there, right? That's, how crazy is that? Okay, now real talk, real talk. Like, I want you to think about the craziness of that. Like, the Lord himself is saying, hey, listen, not even scripture reading, not like a congregational worship. The only time you should not be doing this is in prayer and in very short seasons. And then besides that, be unified with each other. Why? Because sex is not just this physical thing that makes us feel good. There's so much more happening. It's divine. It's mysterious in a way. It's why we are allured to it so much, y'all. There's a oneness that happens that's physical, emotional, spiritual. So much is happening that God's saying, this is important. And that's why it's important to do it in its right context. This is a covenant act, and God is doing something powerful here. And yet, to the unmarried person in here who cannot practice that according to the scriptures, listen, there's nothing lost for you because sex isn't God. You ain't missing out on nothing, y'all. Like, sex is not God. It's meant to bound two people together, which is beautiful. But for the Christian, you have a far greater bond that is in your King Christ Jesus. In fact, one of my favorite passages in all the scripture is John 17, verse 3. It'll be on the screen as well. But I love this passage because it says, For this is eternal life. Listen, not living forever. That's not what it goes on to say. Because all of us are going to live forever. It's just, are we going to live forever getting to know the one true God in Jesus Christ? Or are we going to live forever separated from that? Listen, eternal life, living, is knowing God. That word know is a very important word. It's the Greek word gnosko. And there's different types of knowledge. There's knowledge like 2 plus 2 equals 4 right? Like that's one type of knowledge. Or there's knowledge like, uh, yeah, yeah, like I, I know Anthony, I know Renji, but there's also something deeper. This experiential knowledge is what happens there. In fact, in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1, it says, now Adam knew Eve and she conceived and had a son. Therefore, what is it saying? Adam, what? Had sex with Eve, right? Somebody was like, oh, I could say sex in church. <laughs> I ain't pointing at anybody specific, but... <laughs> right? Hey, this is what it means, right? What they knew each other. There was experiential intimacy with one another. And what the scriptures are saying is that true life, life everlasting, what will bring joy to your soul is when you know God experientially. There's this depth with God. There's a oneness with God. This is what sex is actually supposed to do. It's a gift that does not terminate on itself and just becomes a, a good gift to experience, but rather it's meant to point us to something greater. And it's meant to point us to the intimacy that every single soul in here longs to have with your King Jesus, and it's yours if you believe in Jesus, the intimacy that your soul longs for will never be satisfied in the God of sex, but it can be satisfied in Christ. And the oneness that you can experience there, friends, can be palpable. They can be real. In fact, one day, sex is going to taste like chalk when we're in heaven, because it's going to be like, that was it? Because we'll finally get to know our king. Here's an interesting stat. You know that uh, it takes 18 years of monogamous sexual relationship to be uh, fully satisfied sexually. I find the, the peak satisfaction is after year 18. That's how complex and kind of beautiful God created sex, right? Now, I'm just going to tell you, I'm more than halfway there, all right? <laughs> 
my wife was like, I'm so glad I ain't here when you're talking about sex. Like she was like, yeah, right? And uh, I, I, I don't want to paint a crazy picture. Like sex is awesome. It's not gross. That's not what I'm saying at all up here. It's a really, really good gift. I can promise you with every uh, uh, piece of integrity that I have that I would give up sex forever, even just for a couple more fragments of Christ, because knowing Jesus is so much greater than sex. And this is what sex is meant to point us to, is this oneness that God longs to have with us. He longs to be unified with the people that he has created, and this is possible because of Jesus. See, Jesus had all intimacy with the Father, y'all, and yet that intimacy was lost as he got crucified on the cross. There was a a, a forsakenness. He felt the divide there. Why? So that you and I, who are meant to be forsaken, cast off from God forever, would not experience that reality, but yet come into to oneness with God, and one day we will be one with him forever, unified as a husband and a wife, Christ being our groom and the church being the bride, and we will be brought together, and your soul will flourish the way it was meant to. This is the reality for those who believe in Jesus. Sex ain't that great, y'all. Terrible God. It's not gross. Praise God for the gift, but that gift is meant to point us to something so much greater And so if you can't have sex right now, listen, you ain't missing out, friends. You're not missing out on anything because sex is not God. The only time you're missing out on God is when you're missing out on God. And so this is the reality we have to carry with us. And if you're married, man, enjoy sex. Like maybe seek counseling or seek others to to maybe overcome whatever grossness may happen because of the past or the way you view it or what's happened to you. Like, man, it is a good gift. It is meant to show you the oneness that you're supposed to have even with your creator as you have that with your spouse one day. Man, praise God for that gift. But it's not the ultimate, y'all. You ain't missing nothing if you can't. And so don't let this culture feed you lies over and over again. It's lying to you. It's lying to you. It's not as great as it says it is. I think we see the foolishness and the wild nature of our culture, even as we look at different things like the the movies that come out. Like in one hand, we will uh, remove Kevin Spacey from House of Cards and anything else that he does because when he was 23, he had sexual relations with a 16-year-old. And then yet we'll give the Academy Award to a movie of a guy who is an older man that is seducing a younger man and they are in sexual relationship with one another and we'll celebrate that. What type of wild chaos is that, y'all? Don't you see the hypocrisy? It creates confusion just like it did for Amnon. When it is not done rightly, it just confuses us. But when it is done rightly, it becomes a beautiful gift. And so I pray that we would be a church that really experiences this gift and this beauty, that we wouldn't be shameful or feel this sense of shame of talking about sex. Y'all, if there are things in the past that we would seek healing from it, Listen, even things like pornography, in fact, at our elder meeting this Friday, we talked about trying to do something that we're going to produce in the fall that will hopefully kind of create some freedom and healing around that because we want your freedom. We don't want you to be enslaved to a cheap, unfulfilling God because it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so we want you to experience that. Maybe you need counseling for things that have happened. Listen, I did that. That is great. Like, man, God uses that to bring healing. But whatever the case may be, I pray that we would be a church that has the right view of sex. Because if we view it rightly, then we won't be infatuated with the lies that it promises to give us. 
and yet we will experience the gift of it in its right context the way we're supposed to, and we will realize that it's really just pointing us to something far greater, friends. And our hearts, what it will do is it will make us long for that much more of Jesus. So if you're single and you can't have sex, realize what you actually want is intimacy with God. And if you're married and sex is awesome, realize that's like chalk compared to what you'll have with God one day. It's meant to point us to God, friends. I love you all. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the healing that could be found in you, Christ, our King. God, I know with this much, even in my own life, seeing sex as God often, seeing it as gross because what's happened to me, I, I just need your healing. And so, Jesus, I pray healing over myself. God, I pray healing over my brothers and my sisters in Christ. I pray that there would be restoration. Would we be a church that's not afraid to go into hard topics, but would we bust right into it, open up the can of words, expose the lies, and find healing that's found in your blood, Jesus? We want your healing to wash over us. So would you even right now wash over my brothers and sisters with healing? If there's guilt because of what they've done, would they cast that guilt on the cross and know they're forgiven in you, Christ? If there's shame because of what's happened to them, would they realize that you can relate, you are with them, you are not distant, you love them, would they find a depth in you? God, I pray that there would be healing, there would be beauty, that we would see this rightly, that we would worship you through this great gift you've given us, God. Would that be true of this body? We love you, Christ our King. We praise in your beautiful name, amen.